Well, we are in the book of Colossians this morning, so I would invite you to turn in God's Word there to Colossians chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a number of them, as was mentioned, in the seats in front of you. And in those volumes, it's going to be either page 925 or 984. Colossians chapter 2, and you see the title of the sermon, Flee from Shadows and Self-Made Religion. And we are returning to Paul's letter to the Colossians. We've taken a break since early July. Uh, but in this letter, Paul is very thankful and encouraged by God's work among the Colossian believers, but he's also deeply burdened for them. He knows that they, like we, face the ever-present danger of false teaching. And that teaching that would bring seductive lies that could shift believers away from the hope of the gospel and take captive believers to false ways of thinking and living. And so this morning we're going to focus on verses 16 to 23, but I want to read all of chapter 2 uh, just to get a flavor of the whole context. And you may not catch everything that's there as I read, but again, I think you'll get a flavor of Paul's heart, of his burden and focus as it leads us into what we'll look at in verses 16 to 23. So let's hear the eternal word of God. I'll start with verse 1 of chapter 2 and go to the end of the chapter. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving." See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Thus says the Lord God. Let me lead us in prayer again as we ask his help. Oh, Father, yours are words of truth and life and goodness and beauty. And by your Spirit, please help us now to see and believe the full treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you've given in Jesus Christ. Help us to hold fast to him alone. Deliver us from what is false. And help me now by your spirit to speak your word accurately and clearly that you might feed our souls. We pray you do this for your glory in Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, I'm sure you know that tomorrow we mark the 22nd anniversary of what we know simply and sadly as 9-11. It was on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, that America, of course, was shook by an attack that was calculated, coordinated, and cold-blooded. Deceitful terrorists who had lived and plotted among us for years executed an assault intended to bring about maximum death, destruction, and fear. And of course, in the years since 9-11, our country has tried to become far more alert and intentional in guarding against any such future attacks. And we understand the reality, don't we? The threat is always present. Well, with a far greater and eternal sense of consequences in view, Paul is on guard against the ever present spiritual threats of false teaching. He is grateful, as I mentioned, for the very rich spiritual fruit that is ripening among the Colossian believers. But he is likewise sounding the alarm that the threat level of spiritual danger is very high. It's at its maximum height. Because false teachers, we might think of them as spiritual terrorists, with their deceitful, plausible, empty philosophies, were relentlessly attacking the Colossian church within which they were presumably embedded. And the same still happens today. God's people must be alert 
and we must flee from false teaching, and we must hold fast to the head of the church, to Jesus Christ. There was real spiritual danger for these Colossian believers, as there is for every single one of us today. The threat of false teaching is always present. And so Paul's pastoral burden is evident throughout the whole of chapter 2. It's evident throughout the entire letter, of course. But in verses 16 to 23, he gets very specific in exposing both the content and the danger of what the false teachers were teaching. Now, we who are Christians today, this is a call for us to recognize, to discern, and to resist false teaching. And we're to do so by confidently clinging to Jesus Christ in faith to confidently cling to his supremacy and his sufficiency at all times. And Paul's central plea in everything that he says here in verses 16 to 23, I think can be summarized this way. Here's the the main truth, the big idea that, that Paul is exhorting, and it's this. Don't let go of Jesus Christ. Don't let go of Jesus Christ. That's at the heart of his plea in verses 16 to 23. Now, Paul develops this central plea by highlighting three connected warnings, three connected warnings that he makes here to expose and to protect against false teachers and their teaching. And so that's what we want to see in the text here is these three connected warnings that collectively issue this call, don't let go of Jesus Christ. Now, just before we look at the first of these warnings, I need to make a quick caveat. This text is one that has historically been very difficult to fully understand. In other words, there are certain words and concepts that Paul speaks of here that are very hard to precisely translate. And what this means is that while the general sense of what Paul is saying is clear enough, the full context and content of the false teaching that he's referring to is just somewhat hazy. We're a few years removed from uh, the Colossian church that he is writing to, a few thousand years, I should say, of course. So it's a little bit hazy, all of the specifics. But it does seem evident that the false teaching that he's dealing with was a syncretistic blend of both Jewish and pagan Gentile beliefs and practices. And as such, it involved such things as legalism and asceticism, mysticism, ritualism, and a lot of other isms as well. And it's not unlike the very syncretistic day in which we live, right? Where everyone seems to simply just pick and choose their own religious preferences from an endless smorgasbord of options. And so this is similar to to the sense of what it was like for the Colossians in their church. And of course, as this is God's eternal word through the Apostle Paul, it bears immediate and relevant application for us as well. It's a call to be discerning. It's a call to not let go of Jesus Christ. Well, with that caveat in mind, let's move into the text and see this first warning that Paul gives. 
And here it is. Don't let biblical legalists judge you. That's the warning. Don't let biblical legalists judge you. And this is what we see in verses 16 and 17. So hear what Paul says. He says, therefore, in light of everything that he's just been saying, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Don't let biblical legalists judge you. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, first of all, just note that the therefore at the start of verse 16 ties Paul's warning to what he's just been saying in verses 9 to 15 about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. If you were with us back in June when we looked at that passage, or I think it was the first Lord's Day in July that we looked at verses 11 through 15, but the context uh, precedes verse 11. But he's speaking there about the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus and our need as believers to be fully confident in the full completeness of all that God has given in Jesus. It's in Jesus and through Jesus that he has circumcised our hearts. He's given us new life through his death and resurrection. He's fully forgiven all of our sins, and he fully protects us over all spiritual rulers and authorities that he has conquered. So therefore, Paul says, don't let yourself be judged by legalistic people who are trying to impose Old Testament biblical requirements on you. That's what he's getting at with those specific things that he identifies in verse 16. They're referring to uh, dietary issues and observance of special day issues that are spoken of in the Old Testament. So they're appealing to Scripture. They're appealing to the Old Testament Scripture. Now, to be sure, for Jews under the Old Covenant, God had indeed established numerous dietary laws along with many laws relating to the observance of special days and Sabbaths and festivals and such. And these were all a part of God's means for establishing the unique and separated identity of his people. But even in his design with all of these things, they were temporary and preparatory, ultimately pointing to the blessings of the new covenant now fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And so this is why Paul says what he does in verse 17, that these Old Testament dietary and ceremonial laws, they were only a shadow of the things to come, a shadow of the substance that belongs to Christ. Now in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, we won't take time to turn there, but in Hebrews 10, verse 1, the entire Old Testament law is referred to as a shadow of the good things to come. And that's the same sense in what Paul is speaking of here in Colossians 2. And so with what he's referring to, apparently these legalists were using Scripture to support their rules about diets and about days. But you see, they missed the point about the substance of Jesus Christ to which these things pointed. 
And so Paul is warning believers to not let themselves be judged by these biblical legalists. Now, sadly, we don't have to think too hard to realize that what we can call biblical legalism is alive and active today. Many of us have experienced that. Perhaps many of us have at times been guilty of of exhibiting that towards others. But there are people who, in the name of Christ, try to expose, or uh, try to impose, I should say, their external rules and regulations and convictions on others, and then using the Bible to argue their case. Now, often this shows up in areas where there is room for legitimate differing opinions and convictions among Christians. But you see, the legalist is not content to to let people have differing convictions before the Lord. He or she wants to impose their convictions as rules and regulations that everybody has to follow. So what are some of the areas where that can apply to you? Well, just some that you could think about would be issues related to drinking alcohol, questions about birth control, vaccinations, educational choices for children, whether or not it's appropriate for Christians to celebrate birthdays or other holidays, and of course any number of theological areas where there can be room for some differing opinions, say with areas like the doctrines of the end times. I see the problem with biblical legalists is that they judge and condemn others who don't hold the same convictions as they do who don't obey the rules and the regulations that they try to impose. Now, please understand, friends, it's good and it's right to have biblically informed convictions. And in those areas that I mentioned and many, many other areas, there are matters that require much discernment and wisdom and prayer and consideration. And likewise, it's important to know that Paul is not against rules and regulations per se. In fact, as we move into chapter 3, as we'll begin to do next week, Lord willing, he has a lot to say about commandments and regulations and directives from the Lord. But you see, the problem with legalists is that they focus on the externals rather than on the heart. And as a result, they undermine the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus and the fullness of his saving and redeeming work. And they serve to hold people in bondage to legalistic rules. By the way, I might mention that it's in Romans chapter 14 and 15 that Paul gives extensive instructions for how Christians are to humbly love, accept, and walk with other Christians who have differing convictions and who also may just be at differing places of of maturity and growth. And that counsel in Romans 14 and 15 is always timely and needed for all of us. But Paul's warning in verses 16 and 17 is a call for Christians to flee from shadows to Jesus Christ, who is the substance. To not let biblical legalists judge you. 
and to be confident in the fullness of Christ and to not let ourselves be judged by others in that way, to not succumb to those temptations. Remember what Paul said earlier in verses 6 and following in chapter 2, really the heart and the epicenter of his entire letter when he says, verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus from the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, by empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Don't let go of Jesus Christ. Don't let legalists who even appeal to Scripture Don't let them judge you in a way that undermines your confidence in the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let go of him. Keep growing and knowing him and worshiping him and following him, being assured of his supremacy and his sufficiency for all that you need. Well, this leads to Paul's next warning in verses 18 and 19. And it's this. Don't let spiritual elitists disqualify you. Don't let spiritual elitists disqualify you. Listen to how he says this, verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Now, as I said earlier, it is hard to know precisely all that Paul is referring to there in verse 18. But it is clear that these false teachers were proud, arrogant, spiritual elitists. In other words, they were puffing themselves up in their own sensuous and fleshly minds with just how spiritual they were. To be an elitist means that they saw themselves as the privileged ones, as the favored ones, as living on a higher plane than others with higher, more superior spiritual insight and experiences. They were spiritual elitists, and they were proud of their ascetic practices, which likely included their rigid rules that related to the diet and to days that Paul speaks of in verse 16. And perhaps those ascetic practices were means of preparing them for the ritualistic worship of angels and then for mystical and subjective experiences of having visions which they bragged on about again and again and again. And from the loftiness of their puffed-up spiritual elitism, that is such a descriptive term, isn't it? They're just puffed up with a sense of their own pride and, and, and being above everybody else. With that sense of elitism, they looked down their noses at lower-class, second-rate people as they saw them who didn't have such uh, strict 
and disciplined practices and who therefore didn't have such subjective mystical experiences and who therefore don't qualify for favor from God. These spiritual elitists, they're kind of like the self-righteous Pharisee that Jesus described in Luke chapter 18, verses 11 and 12, who bragged about his own perceived standing with God as he looked down upon a sinner that he, uh, he saw as ultimately disqualified. Have you ever felt that way around other professing Christians? Where there's just something about them that you just kind of come away feeling like, well, I don't measure up. I'm not like that. I haven't had that insight. I'm not disciplined like that. I haven't had those kinds of experiences. I must, maybe I'm not even a Christian. You see, that's what Paul's concerned about. Because those folks who exhibit that kind of thing carry an air that says, no, you're not qualified. You're not qualified. And see, what Paul is saying is, no, don't let these spiritual elitists disqualify you when Christ himself has qualified you. Don't let them act like a referee in an athletic contest. That's something of what that term for disqualify refers to. Don't let them act like a referee in an athletic contest who decides who is and who isn't qualified to play the game. No, because you see, the reality, friends, is that before God Almighty, we are all on equal ground. There are no first or second or third class distinctions in the kingdom of God. We are all sinners deserving his judgment. And for any of us who are saved, it is because and only because of his grace and his mercy lavishly poured out upon us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because we're so deserving, but because he is so good and kind and loving and merciful. So there's no distinction in that way. Maybe you remember what Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 12, in the context of Paul telling the believers how it is he's praying for them. He says that he's giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Well, this is why, back to chapter 2, verse 19, that Paul goes on to say that the problem with these spiritual elitists is that they're not holding fast to Christ, who is the head of the body. Now, what this indicates, among other things, is that these false teachers were professing Christians in the church. But in their puffed-up arrogance, based on their ascetic practices and mystical experience, they tried to disqualify others in the church who weren't so elite. And you see, that's the problem with spiritual elitists. They think that it's all about him. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. It's all about Christ. He is the head of the body. And in that language in verse 19, Paul is drawing on a vibrant metaphor that he's already used earlier back in chapter 1, verse 18, and then even earlier up in chapter 2 of Christ being the head. And what that means in the picture of the head and the body is that Christ is the one who rules and supplies and directs the life of the body with the implication that every member in the body is important and that every member in the body is to be unified and dependent in joyful submission to Christ the head. 
And you see, in all of it then, God is the one who is at work causing supernatural growth and maturity. This is how God works in his people uh, through Christ and through his word and through his spirit. And so it means that there is no room for spiritual elitism here, but only for humble, joyful, thankful, shared union with Christ and with one another. Now, it's interesting what Paul says there in verse 19 about Christ the head and the rest of his body flowing from him. It anticipates the fuller exhortations that he's going to give in chapter 3 about how Christians are to live with and love one another as members of Christ's body. But for now, he's warning Christians to not let themselves be disqualified by spiritual elitists. And we need to discern these things. We need to recognize and resist such dangers. Well, as it was with biblical legalists, so it is with spiritual elitists that there's no lack of professing Christians today who can exhibit proud attitudes of puffed-up spiritual elitism. Whether it's because of how much knowledge they might have, or maybe it's because of what kind of mystical, spiritual, supernatural experiences they've had, or maybe they're puffed up about their spiritual gifts and abilities that they might possess, or maybe how rigidly ascetic they might be in their daily life, or even how sacrificially they might serve, even if they give until it hurts, as Gary reminded me earlier. Um, They can get puffed up about that, and in that pride, they can disdain and disqualify other Christians whom they don't deem as worthy. And you see what happens then as a result is they dishonor Christ the head and they arrogantly and wickedly bring great division to the whole body of Christ because they don't hold fast to him. Beloved, You see, we need to not let ourselves be judged by biblical legalists, nor let ourselves be disqualified by spiritual elitists. And what this means is we need to not fear other people and the erroneous, often arrogant opinions they might have of us, whether they're real or whether we're just perceiving that. Again, we need to be confident in the fullness of all of God's provision in Jesus Christ. We need to find all of our identity and our security and our worth in Jesus. And that's the the fullest focus of our love for one another, is helping one another to find confidence in Jesus, to humbly hold fast to him who is the head and trusting his infinite superiority and sufficiency in all of his supply. So you see, again, this is the call. Don't let go of Jesus Christ. Don't let go of him. Well, this brings us to Paul's third connected warning. And it's in verses 20 to 23. And I'll say it this way. Don't let carnal hypocrites defraud you. Don't let carnal hypocrites defraud you. Hear what Paul says, verse 20. If with Christ... And you get the sense of a a burdened question he's asking here, a rhetorical question. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, 
as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He puts parenthetically, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. And then he further exposes the fallacy of these things. He says in verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value, no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what Paul says here in the form of an emphatic rhetorical question is, is he's likely summarizing and saying more about the errors of the false teachers that he's already exposed in verses 16 and 19 through 19. In other words, this isn't a new category per se. It's sort of a summary and a clarification of what he's already said. And he's not talking then about different groups of false teachers, but different aspects of one group and how they impact believers. In other words, the the false teachers are biblical legalists and they're spiritual elitists and they are ultimately carnal hypocrites. And by carnal, what I mean is that they are fleshly people who give the appearance of spiritual wisdom, but at the end of the day, they're hypocrites. In other words, they're spiritual phonies. They are fake For them, it's all external. Their hearts are unchanged. And as Paul says, they're still enslaved. That's the implication. They're still enslaved to the indulgence of their flesh. And in their selfish, godless pride, what they do then is they try to judge and disqualify and defraud true believers. And in the end, Paul says, all that they preach and all that they propagate is rooted in human precepts and teaching. In other words, it's man-made and it's man-centered. And what they teach is powerless and useless. Paul says it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, he says, such self-made religion with all of its asceticism and severity of the body, it doesn't save, it doesn't transform, it doesn't deliver anyone. Because you see the issues of our sin and our enslavement, our natural enslavement to the indulgence of the flesh, the issues there are that we need a new heart. As Paul describes a bit earlier in chapter 2, we're spiritually dead. And we need to be made alive, which only God can do and has done through Jesus Christ, through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, brought to bear on any of us through God's Spirit and His Word. We need to be born of God. That's how we're transformed. That's how we're changed. But you see, for these carnal hypocrites, it's all external. And at the end of the day, nothing has changed. They've just changed the dressing on the exterior, but they haven't changed the reality of the interior. And so Paul's passionate rhetorical question to believers is, listen, listen, if you've already died with Christ to these elemental spirits of the world, and that's a phrase, by the way, the elemental spirits of the world that he used up in verse 8 of chapter 2, 
It refers to demonic, worldly, the demonic, worldly source of all false teaching, even as that false teaching comes through human false teachers. But Paul's saying, if you've already died in that sense to Christ, in Christ and with Christ to all of this, why is it that you're letting them defraud you? That's the implication. Defraud you of your true inheritance and reward in Christ by you submitting to their regulations. And again, with that list of regulations that he gives, he's just echoing some of the specificities of, of what he's already talked about earlier in this text. Paul's in essence saying, listen, if you're submitting to those regulations and thinking that that's going to bring about growth and favor with God, what you're doing is absurd because you've already died to all of this in Christ and you've been raised to new life in him. So don't let these hypocrites defraud you. Don't let them rob you or deprive you of all of your rights and identity and inheritance in Christ. Because you see, that's what's happening if you're giving in to their rules and regulations. They're perverting the gospel with man-centered, self-made religion. And Paul's burden is that they'll defraud you if you follow them and what they say. So keep walking with Jesus, with whom you have died and with whom you have been raised to new life. In other words, hold fast to him. Don't let go of Jesus Christ. You know, as we think about such uh, hypocrites in our own day, and, I, and I'm sure like you, myself, these things cause us to kind of <clears throat> gulp. And Lord, I hope I'm not that because I know there can be those tendencies in every one of these areas. So God, please deliver me from this. I hope that's the case for all of us. But we also need to be discerning and recognize things around us that, that expose and that exemplify the very things that Paul's speaking about. I think so much, among other things, I think so much of what goes on today in many, many churches in the name of Jesus Christ is often nothing but modern-day examples, tragically, of man-centered, self-made religion being propagated by carnal hypocrites. In other words, supposed worship services, which maybe they are worship services, but it's more of a self-worship than a Jesus-worship, Often they can be nothing more than worldly concerts and hype, complete with the latest technology and overpowering music and stunning lights and smoke and graphics and maybe a little topical, motivated speech that makes a brief reference to God's word, but in such it adulterates the word of God into a self-help, feel-good, you-can-do-it kind of a book. Perhaps these are examples of that which is being put forth by carnal hypocrites. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be discerning. And again, we need to be humble. We need to recognize that we can fall prey to any measure of error. So it's not for us to cast stones per se, but we need to be discerning and we need to evaluate, we need to judge according to the word of God because it's God's judgment through his word. But the heart of Paul here is don't let carnal hypocrites defraud you with all these glitzy and showy and really cool displays, don't let them defraud you of your inheritance in Jesus. Don't let Jesus go. So, beloved, the, the heart of God through Paul in this passage is get Jesus Christ. 
Get Jesus Christ. Hold fast to Jesus Christ and don't let him go. It's only in him and through him that we have eternal life. And for as long as he has left us in this world, yes, we still live in the world. We still walk in the world, which is why Paul's going to address everything he addresses in the rest of the letter in chapters 3 and 4. But we're here to proclaim Christ. And we're here to demonstrate the life of Christ in our lives as well as in our lives together. And that's why we're here. So we need to avoid legalism. We need to avoid elitism. We need to avoid hypocrisy. We need to not let go of Jesus. Don't let the biblical legalists judge you. Don't let the spiritual elitists disqualify you. Don't let carnal hypocrites defraud you. Flee from all of that. Flee from the shadows to Christ the substance. Flee from elitism to Christ the head. Flee from self-made religion to Christ the crucified, risen, life-transforming, all-sufficient, supreme, returning conqueror and king. Don't let him go. And again, we need to be on guard against the dangers of false teachers and false teaching, but we likewise need to be on guard against the possibility of us falling prey to doing any of that. And so we need to watch and guard our own hearts trusting that God will search us, deliver us, help us, cleanse us, and grow us to get Jesus and to not let go of him. Now, by the way, when I say get Jesus, there's a double meaning to getting Jesus. The first sense is to get him in terms of receiving him by faith, trusting him, following him, and walking in him, as Paul says in Chapter 2, verse 6. Have you received Jesus Christ by faith? Have you known yourself to be one created by God, accountable to God, a helpless sinner who is worthy of God's judgment because of rebellion against God and who finds hope only in God's provision for your sin through Jesus Christ? He and he alone is the one in whom we are saved. And if we repent from our sin and our dependency on ourselves and our rebellion against God, looking to Christ and all of God's provision, that's the one in whom we know forgiveness and reconciliation and a flood of spiritual blessings that God has designed and given to us in Jesus. So to get him in the first sense means to receive him, to trust him, to follow him, to walk in him. But it also means, in a second sense, to get him in terms of knowing and understanding him. We use that a lot, right? Well, you know, he or she, they just don't really get me. That's always an intriguing phrase. I mean, I don't get myself, so I have no expectation for others. But the question is, do we get Jesus in that sense? Are we growing in our knowledge and our understanding of him? And as we've already alluded to numerous times here in chapter 2, as well as as even in other parts of our service, God wants us to know him. He wants us to know the fullness, the greatness, the majesty, the wonder of who he is in Christ. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, and read how Paul is praying for the believers, it's what God wills for us. And the heart of that prayer is, I want you to grow in the knowledge of God. Now, that's a continual process for every single one of us. Whether you've been a 
believer for five minutes or whether you've been a believer for 50 years, there's always room to keep growing. But see, that's the point, that we're growing in the knowledge of God in Christ through his word in deeper and deeper ways. And if we're rightly growing in that, it should deepen our humility and deepen our confidence and deepen our assurance I will tell you, and many of you know this experientially, it will also deepen your awareness of your own sin and the depth of that sin, but concurrently the the wonders of God's grace in Christ that forgives and that cleanses and that restores and that makes us, counts us righteous in Christ, but actually makes us righteous in a growing way. And we anticipate the day we'll all be in heaven and be glorified and we won't, we won't wrestle with sin and unrighteousness anymore. But you see, that's the hope we have. Do you get Jesus in that sense? Are you growing in your knowledge of him, seeking to know him through, your, through his word, seeking to set aside whatever things may be distractions, hindrances, and, and doing all you reasonably can to be seeking him, to know him, to, to get him in that sense? Know who he is, what he's done, what he's accomplished, what he's given to get him as the infinite and glorious God that he is. And we'll spend all eternity for believers in in knowing him, in getting him in that sense more and more. Well, as we draw this to a close, you might even be asking, well, specifically and practically then, in light of all of this, exactly how, how Do you hold fast to Jesus and not let go of him? How do you avoid the ever-present, deceptive, intimidating, seductive dangers of false teaching? Exactly and practically, how do you do that? Well, good news. That's what Paul goes on to address in chapters 3 and following, which, Lord willing, we'll get into next week. But just listen to the beginning of chapter 3 because you hear he now shifts, he turns the corner a little bit, kind of shifts gears and says, now in light of all these things that you need to be on guard against, here's how you do it. So he says, chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What's the key to not letting Jesus go? It's seeking the things that are above, where Christ is. It's setting your minds on the things that are above. And again, next week, Lord willing, we'll look into those words more fully. But for now, let me lead us in prayer as we close out our time together. Oh, our Father, how we thank you for your life-giving word. Even as you told, have told us that your word is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that your word judges the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts And no doubt, as you have done and continue to do in my own soul and heart, perhaps you are doing the same for many, even here today. God, may that work be brought to completion with purer, stronger, fuller confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ and all of your provision in him. 
Perhaps there are some who have never bowed the knee to Jesus. May today be the day of salvation for them. And for those of us who by your grace have, may, may today be a day that we take a step forward in, in walking with Jesus and being all the more alert, all the more discerning, and not letting go of all that you have given to us in him, who is our treasure and our joy. We thank you for the time together today in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.